Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Saints Preserve Us, the podcast that tells you everything you need to know about every saint you'll ever need. I'm Christian O'Toole, and I'm here, as always, with Sean Kelly and Rosemary Rogers, authors of Saints Preserve Us, the birthday book of saints, the Saint of Day Guide. Sean and Rosemary, how are you guys doing? Great. Under the circumstances, <laughs> The circumstances here in New York are not great at the moment, if you haven't been keeping up with the news. And kind of reminds me of what I wanted to start with today, which is we ended the last episode with Maeve Callan, sort of the end of November, and we missed this kind of milestone that I really love the idea of, which is the end of ordinary time. Yes. Because I really feel like we're living in the end of ordinary time. Uh, And we have been for quite some time. But the end of ordinary time is the end of the liturgical calendar for the year and sort of the beginning of the lead up to Christmas. Advent. Advent, yes. And the other thing I really like about that moment is there's a feast of Christ the King there, which is technically called the Solemnity of Our Lord Jesus Christ King of the universe. Wow. The Feast of Christ the King has the most bombastic anthem of any hymn ever written. Now, do they parade the monstrance on that feast? I don't know, but they talk about an army of youth. Oh, yeah. Scary. Flying a banner of truth. Yes. Honestly, on we swing. <laughs> Comrades, true. Yeah. Well, it was. Only sword. <laughs> Catholic action, our cry. Yes. Are these lyrics to yes, the yes. To the Christ the King of the Universe yes. song? Yes. I just love this name. lifted high. It was my favorite part. <laughs> you don't hear the universe brought up much in no. they the just Catholic added Church. that recently. Yeah, the whole feast was only added in 1925 by Pope Pius XI. So it's a relatively new addition. But I like the idea of Christ being king of the entire universe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because that's about the time they began thinking, what about other planets, maybe? Could be someone. Right. Yeah, another great divine ruler. When they started to get into, you know, Einstein and quantum theory and things like this, maybe they kind of realized, we we need to expand this out. Mm Can't just be Lord of Earth. The Feast of Christ the King, King of the Universe... It's normally held on the last day of November, so I think the earliest can be is November 20th, and the latest can be is November 26th. And so mm-hmm. that leads us into Advent and to Christmas. And I mean, we did such a big Michaelmas mm-hmm. episode yeah. that I feel like we should at least nod our hat to Yeah, to Christmas, Christmas. was so eclipsed by Michaelmas, which yeah, yeah, nobody yeah. celebrates. <laughs> yeah, there's Martinmas and Michaelmas, and then Christmas and after Christmas, Childrenmas. Children miss. That's a new is, one. Which is the feast of the holy innocents. Oh, oh right. A thing that never happened. A <laughs> thing that never happened that even the Catholic Church acknowledges never happened. Yes. But I guess they just like the idea of dead babies. Well, what is this? What are the holy innocents? Oh. For some happened? reason, in order to make a prophecy from the Old Testament come true, the uh, gospel writers had to have a whole lot of babies killed and Jesus making a run for it. 
right? And so they invented this thing that Herod went nuts when he heard there was a new king mm-hmm. and ordered all of the children under a certain age killed. Right. In the morality plays, it always said Herod rages among the crowd. Mm-hmm. Herod was like a joke figure to those people. But anyhow, he ordered all the firstborn newborns killed so the new king couldn't make it. But an angel appeared to St. Joseph and said, Tell him to skedaddle. Yeah. And so they hit the road for Egypt, because that's what it said in the Old Testament. So what choice had they? Right. Yes, and whenever you see it depicted in films and everything, it's like just the most horrific thing to see all these children being killed. And it never even happened. Well, is this the same as Passover when you have... No, no, no. That's that's a different (laughs) slaughter of children. Yes. But it is. Some of the gospel writers were really anxious to make sure that everything they wrote about Jesus corresponded to a prophecy Mm -hmm. somewhere. So you think, it said in the prophecy that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Mm-hmm. But obviously Jesus was born in Nazareth. So mm-hmm. they had to figure out some way around that. To get him from point A to point B. Yeah. So right. then they made up this census, which never happened. And it was a kind of census that meant you had to go to the... What? Door to door. You went door to door. You went to them? Yes. And that's how they wound up in the stable in Bethlehem. So that's why Mary and Joseph were on the road, because they had to show up for a census? That's what it says. Wow. Which, by the way, the Romans failed to record. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder why. Slipshod. They never quite got there? No. And anyhow, it's sweet the amount of trouble they went to in preaching the gospel to the Hebrews. Right. They had to make those Old Testament Mm -hmm. Bible correspondence. Whereas some of the gospel writers who were writing for the, the Gentiles didn't mm-hmm. bother with any of that stuff. You know, they also said this thing that at the moment Jesus died, the, the curtain in the temple mm-hmm. was rent. Mm-hmm. And I remember as a little kid thinking, well, why didn't everyone believe in Jesus when they saw that that happened? Yeah. Well, of course, because it didn't happen. <laughs> Actually, they owned the curtain, so it wasn't rent. (laughs) (laughs) It was leased with an option to buy. So Christ is born, theoretically, on December 25th. I mean, is that accurate to the Gospels as well, or did we kind of... There's no indication in the Gospels about what time of year it was. Right. I don't think there was any snow. Well, yeah, maybe it's... On the palm trees, but we're going to celebrate the renewal of light. Mm. Everything went totally dark, and then a light showed up, and... Here we are, enlightened. So when does that happen? Well, it's on the solstice. But, of course, they didn't have a real good idea of when the solstice was. So they went for uh, the 25th, which was also the Feast of Yule Mm -hmm. in the uh, pagan Mm -hmm. countries, and the Feast of Mithras in Rome. So it was convenient. It's just they baptized those two pagan feasts and said that arbitrarily is when Christ was born. But remember, Chris Christopherson put out an album long ago called Jesus Was a Capricorn. It's just mixing all kinds of things together. Yeah. Well, we've jumped ahead a little bit through December to get to Christmas. So let's circle back to the beginning of the month, because we do have a number of saints from December who are sort of interesting. And starting on December 2nd, we have Bibiana Viviana, Mm -hmm. which is a callback to episode 13 with Elizabeth Harper, if you haven't listened to it. There was some debate over whether that's the same Bibiana that's laying in rest in Los Angeles. That's right. Currently. 
definitely incorrupt. But tell us a little bit more about her for those who missed that episode because she is the patron saint of hangovers. Yes, it's uh, also fitting that, you know, we can talk about her this time of year because she's very good at that. The thing is, of course, it's a pun. If there was a saint, Viviana, and there might well have been, the word Vivian and the word vivacious come out of the same word pool. There's a word in English for being drunk with bib. Imbibe. Imbibe. Yeah. Because yeah. bib and bib were interchangeable, apparently, among the Latins. And so they, they had a saying, Beati Hispani qui bibere bibere est, which meant uh, lucky are the Spaniards for to live is to drink. <laughs> Whoa. Because of the B and B confusion. Right. So anyhow, we might call Vivian, Vivian, maybe, I don't know. How do we pronounce Cordoba? Cordoba? Okay, I go with Cordova. Okay, I go with Cordova, too. And if you had a nurse, they would ask if you want another Adaban. <laughs> Not anymore, they don't. <laughs> I know. Back in your day, if you were lucky, yeah. And the story of St. Bibiana is kind of off the wall, as I recall. Well, in the, in the year 363, Julian the Apostate made Apronius governor of Rome. He martyred Bibiana's entire family. Oh, that's not nice. No. Her father, St. Flavian... Has his feast day on December 22nd. Her sister, St. Demetria, has her feast day on June 21st. And St. Defrosa, the mother of St. Bibiana, had her feast day on January 4th. So that's upcoming. The court sent Bibiana to live in a house of ill repute. Oof. Mm. In the hands of a wicked woman called Rufina, who in vain endeavored to seduce her to earn her keep in sinful ways. Kind of like uh, Ghislaine Maxwell. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Very much so. She was grooming her. She used blows as well as persuasion, including the drinking of molten lead. Yikes. Well, ouch. But the Christian virgin remained faithful. Enraged at the constancy of this saintly virgin, Apronianus ordered her to be tied between pillars and beaten with scourges, laden with lead plummets until she expired. Well, that sounds like just another job she could have been doing at this, <laughs> this house of ill repute. That was just his kink, and he tried to, like, rope it into his judgment here. That's just getting a freebie, man. Come on. You got to pay your sex workers. So she expired, which is probably for the mm. best in these circumstances. No more drinking lead. <laughs> Scavenging dogs turned away from the corpse of St. Bibiana, fearful of its sanctity. Let's see the dogs now. Two days after her death, a priest named John buried Bibiana near her mother and her sister in the garden of her home. It is said that upon her burial, mysterious and magical herbs grew up around her grave and that these herbs worked the miracles. A church was built over her grave in Rome. In the Middle Ages, pilgrims to the holy site of Santa Bibiana would scrape dust from its columns and eat it, which worked the same hangover magic as the original herbs did. Wow. Mm-hmm. There you have it. I'm wondering what these herbs are because... Uh... Mushrooms. <laughs> answered your own question. Well, I was going to say cannabis. Right. Has been known to... To bring you down. To help with mm-hmm. hangovers. Yeah. It's also... The Rastafarians believe it grew on the grave of King Solomon. Oh, is that right? Yeah. The, the sacred weed? That's why they think it's sacred. And they're mm-hmm. always going back to the Old Testament, those Rastas. Yes, they are. They love their Old Testament. They well, are. Bibiana, that's a rough story. It is horrible. But I think we have one coming up that's even worse. Ulalia. Oh, oh, I actually God. felt oh. nauseous in the cab coming yeah, here. That's, yeah, but that's a rough one. Now, the thing about Bibiana is that one of my granddaughters was born on her feast day. And I've always thought when she grows up, she's not going to be a cheap date. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
But she's also can be invoked for torture victims. So, I mean, if, if you're in one of these situations where you're being held by Zane Maxwell type and being tortured, <laughs> you got Viviana. And also against epilepsy, headaches, and mental illness. I was wondering if, like, her sister Demetria, like, dementia, this kind of sounds similar to that, too. It's also Earth, too. Oh, um, Demetria? Mm-hmm. Well, there's some serious names in this family. St. Flavian was her it's father. It's really a great name. Can you imagine naming a kid today, Flavian? <laughs> no, I really can't. I, Flavian I, Kelly. Flavian. Maybe he's the patron saint of Flavor Flav. <laughs> oh, that's right. And that brings Bibiana in of a necessity. Yes. Because I think Flavor Flav sometimes. <laughs> Overdoes it? Over, over, it was overserved. Yes. Did you guys ever catch the, in the sort of second wave of reality television when they did started doing really trashy oh, versions of The right. Bachelor? Yeah. There was a show called Flavor of Love where there was just a whole format where basically you would rent a cheap house somewhere in like the Hollywood Hills, you know, this McMansion and then bring a bunch of trashy people in and they would all vie for the affection of whatever B-list celebrity. So Flavor Flav was the celebrity in this case. And... It was famous for, in the first episode, one of the girls, after imbibing far too much on the first night, took a shit in the hallway <laughs> of this uh, mansion. And the rest of the women all like, were like, well, she's the first to go, clearly. Oh. Because you can't have her around. Oh, God. But didn't uh, have a co-host on, on a show? Wasn't there like also a similarly downscaled celebrity? Well, I think he may have been part of a whole thing where, like, Vern Troyer was involved, too. Like, that little guy in the cart. That guy imbibed so much. He would be hammered and, like, falling off his little cart and driving around naked and everything. He may be dead now, so I should not speak to ill of Vern Troyer. But it was a real dark period in, it really was. in cable television. Like- Crank my crib or something? <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, yes. Well, cribs was, you know, the touring of people's homes that were not really their homes. Yes. And my favorite one of that was Naomi Campbell, who said, tour my beautiful Jamaican villa on the water here. You know, isn't it gorgeous? It's right on this lagoon. And then years later, I wanted to visit Jamaica, but I was looking at these properties that are part of this boutique hotel organization. And one of them was the former home of Ian Fleming, you know, the author of James Bond. Mm -hmm. And it's called Goldeneye. And I looked at the photos online. I was like, that's the house Naomi Campbell was claiming to be hers. (laughs) So I met some of the producers of Cribs back in the day because I did work briefly at MTV. And they were like, oh, yeah, we just rent all of them. Nobody owns any of those homes. Although Redman, who was another hip hop artist, like from, I think, Staten Island, who was friends with Method Man. Redman, I think it really was his house because he famously had just like a shoebox full of $1 bills, uh, (laughs) you know, and like loose cash on the refrigerator. He's like, if I have any cash, I got the shoebox right here. (laughs) He had like a Sega Dreamcast and a shoebox full of cash. And that was it. (laughs) He's like, this is my... Who could ask for anything Yeah. So December 4th, St. Barbara... Who I feel like we've talked about before. I think we have definitely talked about her quite Uh, a bit. She's a patron of architects, firefighters, fireworks. I didn't know fireworks needed a patron, just to make sure they don't kill anybody or go around. She also murderers, which I just realized today. Well, she's gunners, the Italian Navy, masons, mathematicians, miners. This is again where they just start, they went on an M run. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Miners, tunnelers. Invoked against lightning and sudden death, which how would you know 
Yeah. To invoke somebody against sudden death, it's sudden. <laughs> you well, know, it's, by the time you realize it, you're back. Oh, you're gone. Oh, I thought she was mur- I know one of these month sages is evoked against murderers, and I kind of well, think that's well, really I, nice. I see. She has been taken as a patron saint by others who use firearms, including bandits, thugs, and gangsters. And thugs, you brought up this one time. They're Indian. They, yeah, the thuggies. They are, are the disciples of... Uh, Kali. Kali. Oh, really? The goddess of destruction. Yeah. But Barbara's all about explosives. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and she's fiery, too. And the same barb on the ship is where the, the where they store the gunpowder. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. And you don't want to have a cannonball hit that when you're fooling around. Yeah. It's because her tower was struck by lightning. Oh, right. And that is one of the tarot cards. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It's that tower being struck by lightning with the... Uh, St. Barbara in there. Barbara is, of course, means barbarian. And the reason is because the Latins, the Romans, thought that everyone who wasn't speaking Latin was a barbarian going bar, 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 bar. (laughs) (laughs) So in a way, the Beach Boys were honoring that with the bar, 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 bar. Anyhow, it's archetypal, God forbid I said, the archetypal story of the beautiful girl... Whose father puts her in a tower to keep her from... Right. That's what it was. We talked about how she's connected to... Rapunzel. Rapunzel, yeah, in the tarot card. And Deirdre in the Seven Sorrows of Ireland. Deirdre was... Each of the Seven Sorrows? Yes. I didn't know that. I thought she died of a broken heart. No, she banged. She oh, was in... no. Conquibar's chariot. Right after Nisha had died and all that stuff. She just ruined my whole and day. And they were driving along speedily and she threw herself out and hit her head on, on a rock. But at least that's what James Stevens says. Uh, could be. More he's a good source. He was. Well, in the Afro-Cuban religion of Santeria, Barbara is syncretized with Chango, the deity of fire, lightning, and thunder who transcends so gender. Yeah. Well, he transcends gender, apparently. Uh-huh. He's non-binary. <laughs> and represents the strong, sacred energies of determination and commitment. In Palmyra, Cuba, on December 4th, they honor... The Yoruba deity Chango alongside the Christian martyr St. Barbara. The adaptation of African religion to, I mean, they were brought into a Spanish culture. Right, so Afro-Cuban. So they did that, that became Afro-Cuban religion, so that Christianity and their pagan beliefs were merged. Mm -hmm. And in this case, they put Barbara together with Chango, which is okay. Right. I'm sure she doesn't mind. And we had a similar discussion about uh, Babalu yes. and, and St. Rock. And St. Rock. They also kind of merged. So the festival, people are dressed in red, the symbolic color of Chango, and the inhabitants of the town, along with hundreds of visitors, parade the statue of St. Barbara from street to street, accompanied by drumming and singing. In New Orleans, voodoo practices, her offerings are red candles, red roses, and flowers, wine, and red apples. So kind of fiery colors. And the apples can be hollowed out to make oil lamps dedicated to her. Now, the Irish army venerates Barbara as the patron saint of the artillery corps, where she appears on the corps insignia, half-dressed, holding a harp, <laughs> sitting on a field cannon. Yes. 
I've seen that. That's very provocative. Yeah, why do they make her half-dressed? I don't know. Why just Randy Irish? Yeah. No, I, I think she always has been in various states of undress in a lot of her iconography. She just blew her clothes off <laughs> in the explosions. <laughs> Ken Russell made a movie about Tchaikovsky. <laughs> Richard, Richard Chamberlain. Richard Chamberlain was Tchaikovsky. But the great culminating moment was Richard Chamberlain sitting astride a cannon that was firing and firing. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Some kind of... Freudian meaning. When I discovered the picture of St. Barbara, half naked, destroy the cannon, I thought, <laughs> I love this religion. <laughs> well, that reminds me too of Dr. Strangelove, the, oh, yes. the end where he writes the, the bomb down. That's the next generation. The Spanish word Santa Barbara, the corresponding Italian word Santa Barbara, and the obsolete French Santa Barb signify the powder magazine of a ship or fortress. As you said, it was customary to have a statue of St. Barbara at the magazine to protect the ship or fortress from suddenly exploding. Which, I mean, that's good. Mm -hmm. It's good to have. Makes sense. You might as well put it there because that's going to take, yeah, it's going to take the whole ship down. Absolutely. By the way, Santa Barbara, California. Yeah. What do we think of that? It's pretty upscale. I wonder who named it. That's worth looking into. I know, I know. Because Santa Monica... the same person who who called Santa Monica. Well, no, but that was because of the the spring. The tears of Santa Monica Monica coming out of that rock. Was there a big explosion? (laughs) Santa Barbara? Maybe it's like the sunsets there, you know, had the colors of fire. I'll go with that. Because it is on the coast, isn't it? Yes, yes. Do you know the way? <laughs> so rolling right along on December 5th, we have a very short one here. St. Paulinus, Bishop of Brindisi in the reign of Julian the Apostate. He prayed before a temple of Mars, causing it to fall to the ground. He was most severely scourged by the adulterous priests and being pierced with 85 wounds, merited the crown of martyrdom, 662. So he caused the whole temple to fall to the ground? That happened a lot, I believe, back in the day. The missionary saints would go into some temple of a false god, and the whole place would come down. Wow. Like uh, Samson. Really? Right. And, of course, that would irritate the powers that be, and that, that would get you uh, martyred. Right. But I, it's such an interesting idea. It's like fire starter. It's yeah. Like that your very presence can make mm-hmm. something out there happen. There's a great notion of... The idea that I, if I wanted to, I could blow this whole place to smithereens. Yeah. Just by I thinking about it. Talk about getting a Zaya complex. That's a, there's a Grateful Dead lyric from that. I'll blow this whole place down. What's the one from the Old Testament where the walls fall down? Well, it's Jericho. 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 And then didn't know where Lot lived? Didn't that whole place blow up? Well, that place went down too, but that was God did that. God did that. That wasn't uh, the will of Lot. But Jericho, there's a scientific theory that the walls of Jericho fell down because the armies were marching around it so Mm -hmm. long and in such a pattern that it caused the, the walls to vibrate. But they were also playing trumpets. Oh, right. Yeah, that right. you could also do that. Like, if you're playing a, a note at a frequency, it will start to cause the building to shake. Mm-hmm. Because everything is sort of vibrating all the time. Going back to Jesus, King of the Universe, like, we're all just energy vibrating. Mm-hmm. 99.9% of the universe is just energy vibrating, and the other 0.1% is matter. So if you can get vibrating on the same frequency as, like, the matter of the wall, like, it can just crumble. Oh, 
So on December 6th, we have St. Nicholas of Murrah. Now, is this St. Nick? This is jolly old St. Nick. This is jolly old St. Nick. So once again, on the holiday theme here, St. Nicholas of Murrah is also known as Nicholas of Bari. And he's always been among the most popular saints. In Europe, more churches are named for him than any of the apostles. He was one of the first souls recognized throughout Christendom to be in heaven, even though he had not been martyred. He became a saint not by means of a holy death, but because of his holy life. So he was a bishop? Yes. St. Nicholas? And he was a young bishop. He's identified as being young in the myth. And he was wealthy. He was born to a wealthy family. But he uh, distributed his wealth to the poor. And in one particular case, he overheard a family saying that the daughters of the family who didn't have dowries we're going to have to become uh, sex workers, which is reasonable. Like Viviana. (laughs) Yeah. So he, in the night, threw little bags of gold through the window of this household. And that was so that girls could get legitimately married and not be occasions of sin. And those three bags of gold are represented in our world by the pawn shop. Oh, sign. Mm-hmm. The three balls. The three balls. So St. Nicholas, among other things, had right. three balls. There was also that real housewife one time who just, in an argument apropos of nothing, just started saying, satchels of gold, satchels of gold. <laughs> and I never knew what it meant. Maybe she was referring to St. Nicholas somehow. Now, it, the first thing I, that I head for in the uh, museum here is a statue of St. Nicholas pulling three boys out of a barrel. Oh, wow. That one, it's mahogany or something. There was a famine, and so no one could get meat anywhere in the land. And Nicholas went into a restaurant, and they said, would you like some meat? And he said, sure. Where did this come from? (laughs) And he ran down into the basement of the restaurant, and there were pickled boys. Wow. Oh, my God. But he plucked them out one by one, and apparently... They were okay. I don't know how. What meat on the <laughs> when you're pickled, was. I mean, can you breathe? I don't know. But that statue is a fabulous thing to see. They were a little briny, but you know, <laughs> but other than that, all right. Right. Anyhow, he's always identified with uh, being good to children and unmarried girls. He has an amazing because he's in Barry now. He's very identified with Neptune, the right. god of the sea. Right. Uh, Poseidon. He's this bearded man who can bring your ship home somehow. So he's the patron saint of mariners as well. But the story that I like is that Christendom, who needed this pilgrimage center, I mean, you're going to, millions of people are going to come if you've got St. Nicholas's tomb. Right, he's very popular. Because it exudes a kind of... A nice smell. A a nice smell, a perfumey kind of oil. Right, I remember this. You you know, costly. Right. Doesn't smell like pickles. No. (laughs) But curiously, what were they going to do? Because the bones are in... Barry? No, they aren't in Barry. They're across the Adriatic. So some entrepreneurs in Barry, the Italian uh, port city, went over to where the bones were, mm-hmm. killed a few people, <laughs> including a priest. <laughs> and then they had the bones, and they had to get them out of there. Now they've got St. Nicholas's bones. But how do you get them out? And they put them in a barrel labeled pork. <laughs> That'll get it out. That'll get them out because the Muslims didn't want to go anywhere near that barrel. Right. So they brought Nicholas back to Italy. And he has a fabulous tomb there in Bari. Well, this is like a crazy heist movie yeah. at this point now. <laughs> but a couple of years ago, someone decided, yeah, as if. And went into the tomb that they have in Bari. Uh-huh. 
And definitely the skeleton is at the right time right. of the third century. <laughs> and it has a broken nose. Yeah, you mentioned that before. Like yeah. he got into a fight one time. He got into a fight with an Aryan, with a heretic. And got mm-hmm. a broken nose. Wasn't it over like when Easter yeah. fell? Well, was, <laughs> I think it was over the Filioque. <laughs> what is that? That's the question is, is Christ God and the Son of God? Ah, uh, right. That's right. a good question. It is a very good it's question. It's a very, very if good you question. Imagine they could mix it up about that subject. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, and you're not even getting into the Holy Spirit at that point. No. No. It's out in the cold, really. Anyhow, the Feast of St. Nicholas, then, that was in December, was the day in most of Europe when everything turned upside down. It was like the Feast of Fools. Mm-hmm. In a school, the children were in charge of the school, and the teachers were put in their place, right? That's amazing. So mm-hmm. he's the boy saint. And so there were a good number of pranks that mm. went on, he's identified with having fun as a child. So right, yeah. Then they used to have these markets, St. Nicholas markets, which were obviously a good place to buy trinkets for your family and dear ones. And then the nuns in France began giving out treats on the Feast of St. Nicholas. Ah. And so in Europe, many places in Europe, St. Nicholas is when the children get their, their presents. presents on St. Nicholas Day. Right. Or on the Feast of the Epiphany. So for those people, Christmas is very serious and solemn and they go to church. Mm-hmm. Right? So then Martin Luther moved a lot of the St. Nicholas festivities to Christmas. Ah, I see. Because he thought Martin Luther didn't go for saints that much. Right. So he didn't like people. How did go- he get such a big pull, you know, to do something like that. Well, he started his own version of the religion. I mean, he could make up all the rules at that point. So he moved the idea of St. Nicholas to the person who brings the presents at Christmas, which was the Christ child, Uh, the Chris Kindle. But everyone said, oh, you mean Chris Kindle? (laughs) (laughs) So he's St. Nicholas. There's no doing a man in. He's the patron saint of Russia. Yeah, it says here that uh, murderers. The Vladimir murderers. Duke of Russia in Kiev was baptized at Constantinople in 1003, and he took Nicholas as his country's patron saint. For centuries, his feast was the second most important holiday, and only Easter was greater. And he remains the saint most cherished by Russian hearts. Russian cosmonaut Sergei Volkov installed an icon of St. Nicholas on the International Space Station in November 2011. I'm still fascinated by this idea that, like, Martin Luther just decided to retcon Christmas. Was Luther at this point kind of like a dissatisfied ranter, you know, just like an outlier? I think it was that Luther really thought that relics and saints and all that stuff distracted from what he understood Christianity to be about. But so Nicholas was already so popular, and these festivities were popular. There was no they couldn't give it. him the hook at this but point. If you moved it, you moved the Nicholas. celebration away from Nicholas and to Christmas. Christmas. Right. And as I say, the Christ child right. became Chris Kringle. Also, like the bringing of the tree, which is a very old folk thing in Germany, bringing the Yule log into the house. Mm-hmm. It was Martin Luther's idea of bringing a tree into the house at Christmas. So he was absorbing all that stuff. He was a very smart guy, but could not sh- Yeah, I know. <laughs> Killed by constipation. Yeah. It's a terrible well, I'm amazed he went in for any of it at all. Uh-huh. Because normally the early Protestant religion was so dour and mm-hmm. 
glum. Yes, no, he was no he fun loved, at all. Uh, he loved uh, spectacle and all of that. He just didn't <laughs> want people praying to saints or or idols granting or, indulgences. Yes. Right? Yeah, he, all of that. He had a legitimate grief with that beef. We, we, <laughs> we're going to have to go back and do a whole episode on Martin Luther sometime. I mean, he's not a saint because obviously he's completely against all of this. Yes. But he's, he was named Martin because he was born on the feast of St. Martin ah. Tours, which is like he can't get away from it, right? Right. And as a young man, he was caught in a thunderstorm and he promised one of the saints, anyhow, that if he survived this thunderstorm, he would become a priest, which he did. Right. Mm-hmm. So a lot of his early life was obviously very like, priest. Influenced by saints. Saint uh, consciousness, yeah. Wow. So were the Christmas markets that are in Europe, like were those early Nicholas markets? Some then? of them were Nicholas markets. In England, the sailors would come home, and before they got from the port to wherever they lived, they would want to pick up trinkets and presents and things to bring home to the family. Right. So these markets were set up, St. Nicholas Market. And in England, it was St. Audrey, who was, oh, right. whose markets were held in the port cities, and we get our word tawdry. Because all her stuff was like, <laughs> what, was like kitsch. And... <laughs> it's like the original duty-free shops. Mm-hmm. That's right. Get some tawdry stuff on your way out. <laughs> well, as a patron saint of sailors, Nicholas's effigy was the figurehead of many ships, and his fame was spread by sea. So Western European devotion to St. Nicholas was centered at Metz-Lorraine and spread up the Rhine into France and the Low Countries. The clergy of the Cologne Cathedral began to celebrate the saint's feast day by giving fruit and cookies to the boys of the cathedral school. And the Vikings who raided the Mediterranean brought St. Nicholas cult from Italy to Northern Europe. So the cathedral the Vikings erected in Greenland was dedicated to him. So this is how he made his way up to the North Pole. Mm-hmm. Yes. By the Vikings. <laughs> That's right. It did so much. For civilization. But also the ship that arrived in New York bringing us had St. Nicholas as its figurehead. And we still have St. Nicholas Avenue in the St. Nicholas Arena. Oh, St. Nicholas Avenue. One of my first jobs was on was there. Was it in the Bronx? No, it was actually in Washington Heights. Oh, okay. It was horn and hard at my public wants to know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what was the job? I shoved food in shells. Oh, you you stock shelves? Yeah, and I also put the chicken on the rotisserie. Mm. <laughs> I was in high school. That prepared you for St. Lawrence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. In 1066, when William the Conqueror's fleet was hit by a storm prior to his invasion of England, he called out for protection to St. Nicholas. And when Christopher Columbus arrived in Haiti on December 6th, 1492, he named the port San Nicholas, and thanks to the saint for his safe journeys. There's so much more about him here. Now, the original city, Mira, which I think has a new name now, it's a tourist attraction. They have huge, like, balloons of, of Santa Claus mm. and stuff all over town. Come and visit Santa Claus's home. Think of all the places all over the world that are called Christmas Village, Santa's yep. Village. He still brings in the pikers. Yeah. He's, right? It's a whole franchise. Yes. The, the Christmas store. I remember going to a Santa's Village, like, with my my aunt and uncle when I was a kid. It's like uh-huh. one of my earliest memories. They had a little one in Massachusetts. Uh-huh. And you got to feed little pellets to yeah, yeah. reindeer. Yep. They had a real reindeer there. Yeah, but they, they were they got really grossly fat from <laughs> all the children stopping pellets up their gobs. There have been huge, huge St. Nicholas villages in California that are now abandoned. So that's oh, quite right. a place to shoot a film, it would seem to me. In yeah. This giant abandoned pretend North Pole. <laughs> Well, he's become such an icon of, I mean, so many things. Like the Coca-Cola company 
adopted him for yes. marketing. Yes. Very early on, like in the 40s or 50s uh-huh. or something. And oh, so, uh, oh, that's right. They had that great illustration. Yeah, all these kind of illustrations of Santa Claus in connection with Coke. But the rumor is that Santa wears red in honor of the color of Coke, but that's not true. He wore red before, well, before that. Coca-Cola got a hold of him. Mm-hmm. And the illustrations by, say, Norman Rockwell, right. orange uh, for Coca-Cola, are... The Santa that we know, New York invented Christmas, right? right? I mean, everyone else thought Christmas was okay. But in New York on Christmas, in the old days, the Irish especially, but other people just run wild in the streets. It was just, <laughs> it was just a piss out, right? And the good burgers of New York thought this was, we must discourage this in some way. We must make Christmas about family, does this sound familiar? Family yeah. values. Family right? values, right. So the Clement Clark Moore wrote The Night Before Christmas mm-hmm. about jolly old St. Nick. And it was determined that once again, it was to be a day for children uh-huh. rather than it had become a bacchanal. Right? right, yeah. And so Christmas was domesticated in that way in New York. And they were using Santa Claus mm-hmm. uh, to uh, in advertising cuts and stuff in New York very early on. Mm-hmm. And there were Santa Clauses in department stores in the mid-19th century. There's a book called How, what is it, How New York Invented Santa Claus or How New York Invented Christmas or something, anyhow. Mm-hmm. So, um, it's because we did it. They synchronized. See, the Dutch already believed in St. Nicholas. He was their big guy. So it wasn't hard to convince them to come along with this gag. When St. Nicholas shows up in Holland, he comes by ship mm-hmm. and he rides a white horse. So they sometimes call him the white horse rider. And he is accompanied by a young person in blackface who runs around doing mischief while Santa Claus rides his white horse and nods at everybody. And he's called Black Pete, the, 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 the little assistant. The little assistant. And the original story was that he was a Moor who had been captured, and now he was St. Nicholas's pal, like Tonto. Wow. <laughs> they still have the big blowout in uh, until the COVID. But the new story is that he was a chimney sweep. Oh. The reason he's black and a little rascal is because of popping up and down the chimneys. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> That's it. it. Politically correct, Black Peter. That's another Grateful Dead song, by the way. Black, <laughs> black Peter, I think. Yeah. That's right. What's it about? Who's Peter? It's about a guy lying, dying, basically. Wow. But I'm just curious. I want to go back to this idea of like, when did New York kind of change this idea of Christmas? And it was literally the time that Clinton Clark Moore wrote The Night Before Christmas. Although Washington Irving had already written about St. Nick and his sled. And so had O. Henry, too. Mm Mm-hmm. When, was a New Yorker. So what, what years would... What, I think 1870, 1880, mm-hmm. when there was a lot of immigration in New York and the 1,000 or the 900 right. or whatever, the people who were in the Knickerbocker Club thought we've got to do something about this because it's crazy out there. And then when would a Christmas carol fit into that, the, the Dickens? Because that's not really a St. No, Nick thing. No, St. Nick isn't in that, is right. he? In England, it's Father Christmas. Right, yeah. Right. And the Dickens Christmas, the domestic, the idea of Christmas as the family together and stuff, is part of mm-hmm. this consciousness of we have to baptize, we have to do something with this bacchanal, right. which takes place at this time of year, with everyone drunk and disorderly. So it was the job of everybody to detain Christmas. Right, yeah. 
So, well, it's interesting to me how it just became so commercialized, but a lot of this stuff is already there. The giving of presents. What I think is interesting is like he was sort of about redistribution of wealth. Yes. Originally, from what you're saying. Mm -hmm. And when I was a kid, one of my favorite, possibly my favorite movie was It's a Wonderful Life. Uh And I, looking back on it now, I was reading people sort of who watched it for the first time Mm -hmm. recently, reacting to it online. And they were like, this is a dark movie. Like they had no idea what it was about. Yeah, it's about, you know, George going to kill himself because... The bank has run out of money, you know, the savings and loan that he runs because Uh there's this sort of rampant capitalist who, you know, won't give him a break on Christmas Eve. And it really is also sort of a liberal kind of takedown of these robber barons and capitalists and everything. Played by Lionel Barrymore. I know. I know. Nice enough fellow. And uh, Mr. Republican himself plays uh, George. Oh, yeah. But it's really like the people coming together, you know, it's a sort of socialist message in the end that the people can save each other. Yes. Well, most screenwriters back then were all pinkos, right? Well, that was Capra, who was pretty far from being a pinko. Yeah, but he was a populist, though. Yes, definitely, so, definitely. But I think that was part of it. Is uh, I think I responded to Capra because he's such a good filmmaker, mm-hmm. and he's you know wholesome stuff. Yeah, but I have to say I'm not a fan of that movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, uh, are you Donna Reed? What could be wrong? She is a hot patootie. <laughs> <laughs> I just find it weird. It may speak to like my future dabblings and depression that <laughs> like I responded to this so okay. much like you know like I don't know he's kind of a martyr unto himself too you know like he feels like he's got to support the whole family that's right and uh, yes he, it all comes down to him and he's failed right yeah yeah we all know that feeling yeah but I, anyways I, I think Christmas has become such an interesting fascinating mixed up thing these days it's just kind of the, the war it. on Christmas that like the right wing keeps trying to pretend is happening did you see that the giant Christmas tree outside of Fox News was yes. set on fire and this year? It wasn't year? a tree. It wasn't a tree. tree to begin what was with. it? It was just a cone. <laughs> it was a cone. And so that when they set it on fire, it went boom, because it was just a skin around a cone-shaped structure. Because they can't even get that right. Right, yeah. No, but, but also the last couple of Christmases have been really just dreary as hell. Yeah, well, it's been it's been a rough time. Because sure. you can't get together with, again, that thing of Christmas being about family and right. all of that business. And suddenly that can't be done. Yeah. And that makes Christmas pretty lonely. Yeah. yeah. And of course, Christmas is when a lot of people take the... They do commit suicide. Yeah, yeah because they've watched It's a Wonderful Life too many times. That would make me commit suicide. <laughs> So let's move on. December 7th, and I know we've gone from Christmas backwards now, but remember St. Nick was December 6th. Ambrose of Milan. We've talked about him before, yes. too, right? Yes, yeah. Patron of bees, beekeepers, beggars, bishops. And again, it's just the alliteration. They just, mm-hmm. they're like, what else do we have in the bee ridge? Yeah. Probably true. Candle makers, domestic animals, geese, livestock, police officers, students, wax refiners, and the city of Milan. What is a wax refiner? Does anyone know? What I guess you got to you got to clean out the wax because you know otherwise you, you get a lot of junk in it when you take it out of the beehive. Yeah, it's dirty. Oh, I was thinking of another kind of wax. <laughs> but the thing is to to say how uh, eloquent he was. Mm-hmm. His symbol was the bee, which is like it was honey sweet. Then he becomes the patron saint of bees, which is nice. Mm-hmm. Really? 
But I thought we talked about the Honey Sweet Doctor on a different... Well, that's a different Honey Sweet Doctor. Oh, there's a different one. We, they just probably like, when we talked about Rumbold, who spoke when he was born, had full command of the language. Ambrose, also, when he was being baptized, sat up in his baptismal font and gave a sermon. Wow. So it also says when he was an infant, a swarm of bees landed on his face and flew in and out of his mouth, Ugh. leaving a drop of honey on his tongue. That's why he's the Honey Tongue Doctor. So he's the wow. Honey Tongue Doctor. Yes. Not the honey sweet doctor, okay. He's more popular with the ladies. Right. <laughs> One of the things that it's hard to remember is that until very recently, the only source of light or sweetness was bees. Mm -hmm. Right. Whales also, if you were close enough to the shore. But that idea of sweetness and light, mm. that these are life's necessities. Right. So we're not animals. We have sweetness and we have light. Is... Now that the bees are endangered, that might be the last step. Yeah, it really bees, is. Then it's over. Yeah. Because you lose all of the the plants. Yeah. If they can't be pollinated, you lose all the fruit trees and everything. Mm -hmm. We lose all the sweetness and all the light. Yeah. And who's seen a bee lately? I haven't. I saw a bee in our garden toward the end of the summer. Yeah. It was nice. Big goofy bumblebee. But yeah, there is a whole thing with colony collapse, and they don't quite know why it's happening, but it's probably pesticides or mm -hmm. something to do with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a it's a big problem. They need to really save the bees because, yeah, as you said, the whole system falls apart yeah. at that point. And everyone knew that somehow. Right. Sugar hadn't probably come to Europe right. until there was trade with, like, the West Indies and yes. stuff, right? Like, mm hmm because cane, sugar cane is not growing in Europe no. anywhere. They had sugar beets. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Didn't they like go mad for it? Like once it showed oh, up, yeah. like, because oh. when early tea and coffee houses, they were just like dumping <clears throat> the stuff in there. Mm -hmm. And chocolate, of course, which mm. also showed up. But wouldn't you? I was thinking about all those songs back in the early 60s, which were called bubblegum. Yeah, bubblegum yeah. pop. But the songs were... You are my candy girl, mm -hmm. and yummy, 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 I got love in my tongue. Right. And it, it's like you're trying to explain to a preteen what love is like. Mm. But of course, they don't know yet. <laughs> They're not yet genitally organized. Right. So you have to explain. It's like wanting a candy. Yeah. And, oh, okay. So saying to you are my candy girl, she feels, oh, that's nice. She doesn't know what you're getting at. Right. Well, even the word sweet has, mm -hmm. you know, those two meanings. Ain't like, you sweet? Yeah. All of a sudden, I was thinking about all the great bubblegum. <laughs> Green tambourine. There was some good stuff. It's a little saccharine for yeah. my taste. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> so by popular demand, Ambrose was baptized a Christian, confirmed, ordained a deacon, a priest, and then consecrated the Bishop of Milan within a week of his birth. Wow. Right? No, within a, all within a oh, week. Oh, all within a week. I thought he was like recognized he, as holy as... You thought he was doing a rumble. Yeah, rumbled was a bishop within yeah, like a day. When he was three days old. But he wasn't even a Christian, that is to say. He, he, they had to christen him before they could make him their bishop. Oh, wow. Oh, so I see. He was baptized, confirmed, ordained, became a priest, and then was bishop. Yeah. Wow. And one of his pains, Ambrose, was that he, until that point, he was a scholar. He was deeply immersed in Romance language literature. And it was really painful for him to adopt his writing to be sort of plain and Christian. Mm -hmm. Because he was uh, tempted to write 
with the milky copiousness of Libby. (laughs) (laughs) So I kind of like that idea of why he was such a stern dude was because he knew if he let go, he'd start shouting, hey, Hugh, Fugatje, and stuff. There are a lot of people like that. Yeah. They just have to keep a lid on it. So St. Monica, Augustine's mother, loved Ambrose as an angel of God who uprooted her son from his former ways and led him to his convictions of Christ. That's another callback to like episode two Mm -hmm. or so, the St. Augustine and then then the St. Monica episode just after it. Some of my favorites. And noble families forbade their daughters to attend his sermons, fearing they'd trade their marriageable status for a life of virginity. So he must have been a great... Performer, too. Honey, honey tongue. Honey tongue. It is on St. Ambrose's Day that the world-famous La Scala Opera House starts its season off. That's such an interesting connection. Yeah. Are they, you know... Are they into him, Ambrose? Are they into bees? Who knows? <laughs> Remember, there was a record about Ambrose. It was like some kind of novelty record back in the 50s. <laughs> Ambrose, keep on walking. It was. I don't know what it was about, but... The yeah, name Ambrose is, you don't hear it a lot. No. Days. No. Well, another name you don't hear a lot is Budok. <laughs> I know. December 9th, Bishop and Hermit, also called Baudu and Buzek. I mean, you never hear that one. The son of a king of Brittany and of Azenor. They, they had better names back in the day. Mm-hmm. Flavinus, <laughs> Azenor. The daughter of the ruler of Brest, France. It's another yeah, that's B-R-E-S-T. <laughs> Princess Azenor was exiled in a cask. Oh, she was like, she was pickled. Yeah. <laughs> and Budok was born at sea, attended by St. Bridget. Ah, another callback to our, uh, our controversial St. Bridget episode. Uh-huh. He eventually left Ireland, sailing in a stone trough that landed at Porpoise, Porsbode, Brittany, and died in 662. I don't see what the... what. What did he do? <laughs> well, he pulled up. He sailed in a, a stone trough. <laughs> I see. <laughs> when I was at Swarthmore College, the engineering department is really good there. And there were people working on creating a concrete canoe. The engineering students were trying to engineer concrete in such a way that it would float. And I think they did it. Uh-huh. I mean, I think what they had to do was like create, you know, air pockets. Mm-hmm. But the structure was concrete and it floated. So maybe he was onto that early. Mm-hmm. Well, there are a lot of saints who are simultaneously in Brittany and in Cornwall or Ireland or Wales. There seems to have been an exchange. Mm-hmm. They called it Brittany for a reason. It was because so many Britons came to live there. And there's a lot of fabulous saints that come out of that. I insisted that we go visit the land of saints there. In Brittany, and they have the saint with three breasts. Oh, right. <laughs> the woman who gave birth to triplets and so about her. All she inspired kinds. that character in uh, Total Recall. Yeah. And then there's a saint who, a blind Saint Samson, who had a pet wolf. Oh. And there's a lot of really good stories out of Brittany, but they are because of Saint Gildas. Who's he's a wolf guy? He's represented as a snarling mad dog. Oh, right, right, because he went from Britain to Brittany and wrote the horribleness of what was going on in Britain, the the fall of civilization, really, because the the bad guys were showing up, and and so he's kind of he was angry, he's a very angry kind of fellow. Mm But think about all the saints that are back and forth between. It's just it's quite touching, and they were all monks apparently. And they traveled in, in that up and down and east and west. It was in those little tiny boats. Yeah, with little tiny feet. 
That's <laughs> tiny feet. <laughs> Anyhow, that's also the land, that exchange of places is the entire Arthurian saga is between those parts of Great Britain and the coast of that's, you know, the forest where all the adventures happened is in Brittany. Oh, right. Anyhow, I think those people shouldn't have been separated by that sea. They're the same people. Uh-huh. Where is Brittany? Directly across from Britain is Normandy, if you drew a straight line. The Normans made it to England. Right. But the Britons made it to Brittany. So when the Normans showed up, the Britons could have. <laughs> so oh. is it in France, though? Yes, yes. It's the coast so it's in France. northern France? Yeah. Is it east or west of Normandy? It's west. and uh, Well, that would make it closer to Ireland, then, yeah. right? And they, there was a lot of transit back and forth between Ireland and Wales and Brittany. And some of these really fantastic priests, there's all kinds of ones about a, a priest who would every day he would catch a fish to eat. And then one day he caught two fish and he didn't understand. He went back to his cell and there were guests. Ah, right. I like that story. It's yeah. a nice story. These people were not wicked. Yeah. So our next martyr was from Spain. So this is oh, Eulalia God. of Merida. Oh, oh. And this is a rough one. It's so rough. If you've got children listening, probably you shouldn't have been doing that. If and you're just eating, you should turn your radio off. Yeah, we've moved on from St. <laughs> Nick, and it's about to take a very dark turn. But still a, a, a winter. Yes. Well, December 10th, Eulalia of Merida. She's the most famous virgin martyr of Spain, patron of runaways and torture victims. Well, now we've got two torture victims. Saints. <laughs> so, I mean, I guess you've got a lot of time on your hands if you're being tortured. You have a lot of people to pray to. And she was a subject of a sermon by St. Augustine, aforementioned in the last section here. Eulalia was a devout Christian, aged 12 to 14. Oh, God. She was so little. Oh, no. Whose mother sequestered her in the countryside because all citizens were required to avow faith in the Roman gods. But Eulalia slipped off in the night and ran through the frozen countryside until she came to the city and presented herself to the law court of the governor Dacian, where she professed herself a Christian, insulted the pagan gods and the emperor. Nothing like a little 13-year-old girl to speak truth to power. The governor displayed to her all his instruments of torture and said, All this you shall escape if you will but touch a little salt and frankincense with the tip of your finger. She trampled on a cake placed there for the pagan sacrifice again. How has she done that? Because she's a 13-year-old girl. Powerful and dangerous and not to be messed with. When she saw those horrible instruments of torture. Oh, my God. You had a 13-year-old girl. Do you not remember? (laughs) Contrarians. Yes. He ordered that she be stripped and her body be torn by iron hooks so as to leave the very bones bare. Yikes. And next, her breasts were severed. And now we've got a little, we've got a song here, a poem. Oh, my gosh, Lorca. Yeah. That was by Lorca? Yeah. Oh, my God, I had no idea. Well, he wrote a lot about being Spanish and all. So I'm going to try to do a little reading here. For the breasts of Eulalia, the consul demands a platter. A jet of green veins bursts from her throat. Her sex trembles, disarrayed like a bird in a thicket. On the ground, unruly, her severed hands writhe, still crossed in a feeble, decapitated prayer. And through the red holes where once were her breasts, tiny skies are now seen in rivulets of white milk. A thousand little trees of blood cover all her back and oppose their moist trunks to the scalpel of the fire. Yellow centurions, gray-fleshed and sleepless in their harness, reach the sky, clashing the silver of their armor. And as a passion of manes and swords is shaking in confusion, the consul bears on a platter. 
the smoky breasts of Eulalia. Wow. Wow. That's by Garcia Lorca, Romancero Gitano, Gypsy Ballads, published in 1928. She too was put into a barrel. <laughs> this is not the theme I thought would have happened in December, but apparently everybody's put in barrels. But this one is really rough. She was put into a oh. barrel that was filled with knives and glass and rolled over the uneven streets. Next, lighted torches were applied to her wounds to increase her sufferings, as if they could be increased any further. <laughs> as if she could still be alive. Yes. And in the process, her hair caught fire and she died asphyxiated by the smoke and the flames. Of her hair. So it wasn't all the terrible wounds. It was that her hair caught fire and she asphyxiated because she's in a barrel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh. No, but it it's rough. It could. Don't mess with Dacian. Then a snowy white dove sprang from her neck. It was Ulalia's innocent soul. So at least while well, the souls got out. That's, I mean, it was good to be a martyr back in those mm-hmm. days. So, you know, it's not a total loss. Judge Dacian ordered the soldiers to hang the girl's mangled body on a cross as a warning to the public, but a sudden heavy snow blanketed the city, covering Eulalia's nakedness until the Christians buried her nearby. For this reason, she is regarded among Catholic school children and teachers alike as the patron saint of snow days. Now I'm never going to think about a snow day the same ever again. I'm going to think about poor Eulalia. Where did they get that kind of joke from? You know? Were they howling when they came up with it? But just the loveliness of suddenly a snowfall and all of the wickedness is covered up. Yeah. And the dove appears, the white dove. It is, there is nothing like the first blanketing of snow. If you go out into it when it's peaceful and quiet and the snow is falling quietly, the whole world is covered in a gentle... And it seems Peace. like it might be a good place. Yeah. Like a good place. And it softens the sound, too, you know, because mm-hmm. all the snow kind of absorbs a lot of the echoes the, and the things. The scene in, in Fellini's I'm Accord. Mm-hmm. Village when they're... When, the, when the, boy, the boys are dancing. They have a little phonograph and they're practicing dancing. And then it begins to snow. And then a peacock shows up. In the audience of the theater, like, bent over with joy and pain and peacock show. <laughs> you know that's true. Right. I mean, nobody would have the, have the imagination to have a peacock show up in the middle of a snowstorm yeah. while the boys are dancing. I mean, that was, that's a big moment in cinema. Yeah. Later, her body was transported to Oviedo, Spain, where it was placed in a chapel dedicated to her memory, popularly known as El Hornito, <laughs> the little oven. Yes. In Dotana, a town of Merida, her statue was processed through the streets on her feast day. That was a rough, rough story. That was really hard. Wow. But I was trying to uh, do some research into what saints are associated with the weather. Who do you pray to for rain, against floods? Mm-hmm. And she's the only one who's connected with snow. Oh, really? Curiously. Not even St. Bernard? You would think with his big old whoopers <laughs> bringing brandy to the punters. Well, I will say if there were any kids listening and they stuck around through all that, which they should not have, but they've, you know, it's gone too far now, you could pray to St. Alalia if you want a snow day. Snow day. But exactly. here's the tragedy of the past two years, I'll tell you. They don't do snow days anymore. No, I know. And they have no meaning at all. Because they learned how to do what they call distance learning or mm-hmm. remote learning. And so they just say, no, no, you're still on the hook. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Show up to Zoom and sit there and look at the snow outside 
and lament the terrible age in which we live. Yeah, exactly. Where, where your only hope is global warming, so there won't be any snow. Yeah, but well. snow days were like they were a gift the greatest thing. from God. Yeah. They really were. Or from Malalia, apparently. From Malalia. As I said, we've come to the end of Ordinary Time, but we've got one very special Sean is very excited about. <laughs> One little treat for New Year's. And Sean, I think I'm going to let you take this one. Explain to us, back in the day... Until 1960. Yes. In fact, New Year's Day, which was a holy day of obligation, Mm -hmm. was known as the Feast of the Circumcision. And the amount of time spent trying to explain that. (laughs) You know it was New Year's, and that was a good reason to go to church. Mm -hmm. Right. But then they would talk about the circumcision. Exactly. It was... And so, there was no way to get your parents to fill you in or anybody. No, my parents would never miss going to Mass together on January 1st. It was like really a sacred uh-huh. thing. But they had no idea it had anything to do with circumcision. They just thought it was because it was the first of the year and they should go to church. Right. And now they've changed the name of it to the Churching of Mary or something. There's a new name for the. <laughs> But if he's in the circumcision in the Roman Catholic Church, but in the Orthodox, Russian and Greek Orthodox, it's still a feast. They keep it real. The circumcision. And the reason they argue that it should be such a feast is that's the first time Jesus shed his blood. Oh. oh right. something. Right? The holy moil. <laughs> well, we have discussed the holy foreskin in the past. We so have. this was a sacred relic that made its way around the world. Is yes. that correct? It had a whole adventure. A life of its own. It had a life of its own. Someone actually even chewed on it. (laughs) So the Feast of the Circumcision of Christ appears on January 1st in the liturgical calendar. I mean, this is really the end of ordinary time. (laughs) This is is the beginning of extraordinary time. (laughs) In the Byzantine Catholic and Eastern Orthodox Church, in the general Roman calendar, the January 1st feast was from 1568 to 1960 called the Circumcision of the Lord and the octave of the nativity. It is now the solemnity of Mary. So they just started, started using solemnity a lot. And that's a very hard word to say. And I think we should bring this back to the old ways because I can't say it again. Solemnity. I've done it twice. Solemnity. And it was, it was rough both times. The solemnity of Mary, mother of God, and the octave day of the nativity of the Lord. I what's mean, they it, really did. They got really day? baroque with these names uh, in days. the 60s. Eight, eight days. days after something. Oh, know. so it's eight days after Christmas then. Yeah. I'm surprised they didn't put Mary, queen of the universe, and all the celestial <laughs> bodies sure. and of the quantum realm in here. That's so the holy band discussing the, the divine foreskin. The Vatican said anybody talking or writing about the divine foreskin was out. Excommunicated. Excommunicated. It's not talked about anymore, but we're going to do it. <laughs> the holy prepus or the holy foreskin. The earliest reports of the first foreskin relic are associated with the Byzantine empress Irene. She apparently gifted the relic to King Charlemagne of both the Franks. Of, both of whom are supposedly saints. I'm just pointing out. I'm wondering where bastard. she got it and how she got it. but. Ah. That's well, like the, the background story is that there was some lady, woman, person, old hang, hanging around the temple, and she sort of picked it up and put it in a box. Uh-huh. <laughs> the, the, and then that's where it was. How it got to the Empress Irene? Another question. She's a weird collector, apparently. 
It arrived in Rome around 799 AD when Charlemagne presented it as a gift to Pope Leo III. It remained in the papal Sancta Sanctorum until the sack of Rome in 1527. The German soldier who stole it was captured in the village of Calcutta, 47 kilometers north of Rome. Thrown into prison, he hid the jeweled reliquary in his cell, where it remained until its rediscovery in 1557. So he was in there for like 30 years. Right. The church that housed the holy foreskin is called Chiesa del SS Non di Gesù, or the Church of the Holy Name of Jesus. Every January 1st, the local priest would lead a procession around the village with the holy relic held high. In 1983, just a few weeks prior to the January 1st celebration, the local priest went to check on the relic, but it was missing. And almost immediately, the rumor started that the Vatican had taken it. It's another heist. Oh, God. The heist of the Holy Foreskin. I wonder if they put it in the Vatican Bank. (laughs) This this should be like the next sequel to that. No, Da Vinci Code. No, yeah, Da Vinci Code. Yeah, this is like the next Da Vinci Code story. (laughs) The the heist of the Holy Foreskin. Now, a thing I just learned... Is that the priest comes out and says it's not there anymore. And everyone says, well, where, where did you see it last? And he said he put it in a shoebox in, <laughs> in his closet. <laughs> Which is very disrespectful. So 31 different churches in Europe had claimed to own the Holy Foreskin at some point in the Middle Ages, including notable churches in Toulouse, Antwerp, Compostela, and Bologna. So basically, I mean, once it's out there that nobody knows where it is. Exactly right. Any foreskin you got (laughs) could be be the one. (laughs) An official 1900 Vatican decree threatened excommunication for anyone who spoke or wrote about the foreskin. The selling of relics is actually a sin called simony. And in 2017, the church reiterated its longstanding message that the selling of relics is still prohibited. St. Catherine of Siena had a vision in which Jesus presented his divine foreskin to her as a wedding ring. And we did talk about this she took it she took, she took it she was the bride of christ and this was the ring that sealed it was the deal. not visible to mortals i don't know how many carrots the holy foreskin is but can you see the other nuns her, 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 is it hot in here or is it mine? Yeah. <laughs> the other nuns looking hot. she then agreed to a mystical marriage with christ austrian christian mystic agnes Blamekin, whose revelations were tenderly transcribed by her Franciscan confessor, crying with compassion, she began to think about the foreskin of Christ, where it may be located, and behold, soon she felt with the greatest sweetness on her tongue a little piece of the skin, <laughs> like the skin in an egg, which she swallowed. I'm like the skin of an egg. Like, what would that be? The white of an egg? Yeah, the membrane between the white and the... Between the, the shell. The between the shell and the white. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I did not know there was such a thing. After she had swallowed it, she again felt the little skin on her tongue with sweetness <laughs> as before. And again, she swallowed it. Wow. Oh, God. It's like the sweetness of a, a honeybee. Mm-hmm. A, that's another theme here. Yes. I'm shocked you haven't made a joke here about, but I'm going to let it go. (laughs) This happened to her about a hundred times. Which makes the second coming seem like nothing. (laughs) This is the hundredth. Oh, one skeptic, a theologian by the name of Leo Alasius, went so far as to say all alleged foreskins were fake. Because according to him, the foreskin ascended into heaven when Jesus did and became one of the rings of Saturn. Because... (laughs) He is Christ, the king of the universe. Sure. Became one of the rings of Saturn. Sure. Of course. I don't know why I didn't think of that myself. 
That's where it is. I'm on board with him. Because I am too. I'm not going to go around praying to some fake foreskin out there. When it's <laughs> up in the... Clearly. Yeah. It's up in the skies. You want to pray to the holy foreskin. Look <laughs> to the heavens. It's a bird. It's around well, the, the bits Saturn. and pieces of, of Jesus that were alleged to be found in the Middle Ages are really quite extraordinary. Mm-hmm. And the true cross being the most amazing. But they, they found his robe. Right. And, uh, and they made a, they a movie about movie. that. Yeah, we yes. talked about both of those before, <laughs> the true cross and the robe. It and was a very... Uh, over the top film. The robe wasn't where John Wayne got. No, no, that was uh, the greatest, the greatest story. story ever told. The robe was Richard, Richard Burton. Burton. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the stuff you had to do to be a movie star. Well, I think this is a perfect way to bring it all back home. Uh, the end of ordinary time and the feast of Christ, the King of the Universe. And his holy foreskin <laughs> ever in rotation around Saturn. Saturn. And in terms of the end of Ordinary Time, I just want to say, too, I think that this is going to be the last episode of season one of Saints Preserve Us. We've gone through 2021. And so we're going to look ahead to 2022. We'll take a little time off and we'll reboot, regurgitate, regurgitate, (laughs) rebuild, reincarnate, if you will. It will ascend into the rings of Saturn and come back. (laughs) With the knowledge of the Holy Foreskin to uh, inform season two, which will be coming soon. But thank you to everyone who's listened. Thank you to all of our guests that we've had on, incredible guests over the the past couple months. Maeve Callen, Elizabeth Harper, Eric Huang, our friend from St. Podcast, Ian Chillog, my mother who stopped by to talk about the Virgin Mary. It's really been... Oh, we had our actor... Oh, uh, yes. Oh, Garrett. Garrett. Garrett yeah, we're definitely going to have Garrett back to do some more dramatic interpretations for season two. That that Shakespeare one gets a lot of plays. People like that one. He, he could have done the Lorca poem. It's beautiful. I know. I was, mean, nothing there was anything wrong with that. No, <laughs> it was not great. My, my, no, my, but it's an amazing poem, is it not? It's so it is. It's dark. It's Lorca. But, but the idea that the holes in the person's body, you can see through there, the sky. It's a, yeah. What? Yeah. What was he on? By the way, was she the one who carries her breasts on a platter? No, no. Oh, God, there's more people who had their breasts cut off. Agatha, yeah. All right, we won't go back. So thank you to all of the guests that we've had on this year. And thank you, Sean and Rosemary, for writing these books. Yay. For bringing me into the podcast. (laughs) Ruining your soul. (laughs) Nauseating you. And I will say thank you to St. Michael and St. Mary, the Blessed Virgin, because I have recently started a new full-time job with Comic Relief and Red Nose Day, doing good for the children of the world. And I prayed to them down at the Queen of All Saints Church and got the new gig. So that's Michael for you. I mean, Mary is, she's got a lot of stuff on her plate. Yeah, yeah. I think you know, I have yeah. to go home and finish praying to St. Anthony. I lost a check and I've been praying to him. I started yeah. last night. But you got my wallet back by praying. I know. And I'm going to start again on him with him okay. tonight. And also, by the way, my Aunt Mary passed away this week, so... Oh, I'm sorry. Say a prayer to her and to the Blessed Virgin, who I feel like has been with us this whole show. Oh, I mean, yeah. she's really... And St. Michael. such a trooper. Some of our, our really our patron saints over here, I think they're, they're some of the big two. So to all the Marys in your life and to yeah, all the children who've got their presents and now are just praying for one more snow day, <laughs> we'll say a prayer to St. Eulalia, because she had a rough... Rough end there. 
But her soul flew away like a dove. Like a dove out of her throat. Yes, yeah. I, mean, I bet she never cried either. No, she, she seemed really tough, I will say. So like a dove, we're going to fly away. Let's fly. And we'll see you again in 2022. All right. So thank you, guys. Amen. Thank you. Amen. Uh-huh.